This is the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Herlihy. News commentary with a California perspective. Season 7, Episode 4. Brexit, the Establishment Civil War. A conversation with author Josh Hamilton. Today's episode is part of our continuing series, Meet the Author. Josh Hamilton will discuss his debut work on Brexit. It's five years since the British people voted 52% to 48 to leave the European Union, which they joined in 1973. The vote was a very contentious one and divided the nation, as well as families, into two camps, stay and leave. And once the referendum was completed, it still took four and a half years of negotiations and three prime ministers to get the job done. The United Kingdom formally left the European Union on January 1, 2021, with a negotiated trade deal, which is still a work in progress. But the United Kingdom is now free to cut its own trade deals with the rest of the world rather than through the European Union. Ironically, the governing Conservative Party, which took the country out of the EU, was also the one which most vociferously advocated joining the EU in the early 1970s. But from the outset, there was opposition to membership as Europe sought greater political and economic integration. The UK exempted itself from participating in Europe's common currency, for instance. But that was not enough to satisfy the anti-EU forces in Great Britain. And Brexit 2016 foreshadowed Donald Trump's victory here in the United States the same year, with many of the same issues playing out on both sides of the Atlantic. Josh Hamilton is a writer and editor for GIST, a political commentary website. A graduate of Queen's University Belfast with a BA in law and politics, he's a keen observer of British politics and Brexit in particular. He joins us today from Belfast, Northern Ireland. Hello, Josh. Welcome to the show. Hi, Jim. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Josh, let's launch right into the book. Um, tell us what may, what motivated you to write it and uh, give us a sense of your of the writing process. Um, well, I don't know. It must have been three or four years ago. I, I noticed that there was, uh, on the Brexit side, there have been a lot of people uh, who, are, who were very heavily in favor of leaving the EU who were also a group of people who were very, very critical of the EU for the protections that it had put in place for workers' rights, for consumer rights, for environmental protections, or in particular, at the, at the outset, I was looking at the, the tax Im, uh, implications of remaining in the EU as the EU are starting a harmonized tax program to try and cut down on both uh, tax avoidance and tax evasion. Now, I, I started to realize that, that these people were, were using some, some campaign techniques that were 
pretty new at the time. I mean, we've we've all become a little more versed in how um, advertising online works in in politics, but the, this was like a real cutting edge thing. That was the first time that that a company had come in and decided that they were going to focus over half of their campaign budget on digital advertising, and by targeting the the right kind of social divisions that, that actually happen to be very similar to the ones you have in America, uh, they were able to, to sort of divide the population and, and just, uh, in my opinion, get them over the edge to, to win in the referendum. So that's how it, how it came about. Now, was that, are you referring to Cambridge Analytica? Because Cambridge Analytica, of course, played, <clears throat> played an important role in the uh, Trump campaign. Yeah. Now, um, the company that worked um, with the official leave campaign in the Brexit campaign, we had one designated on each side that had like a much higher um, budget that they were allowed to spend on the campaign. Um, there was limits placed on it um, because they were concerned about well, the amount of money that would be spent on on, on such a contentious issue. But uh, the company that was used by, by the leave campaign was Aggregate IQ. Now, they are... In some people's mind, um, a subsidiary of, of Cambridge Analytica. Now, there's no um, official contract that we have seen to that date or to this date that says that that is the case, but they, they certainly look like it. Um, Cambridge Analytica were the owners of all of the intellectual property on um, of, of everything that Aggregate IQ sort of produced. And the former head of Aggregate IQ is uh, now back working for... Well, he was initially working for what people described as the the Canadian wing of Cambridge Analytica, which then turned into Aggregate IQ. So there's a lot of ties there. And they used a lot of uh, very similar um, campaign techniques. And that, that involves like taking issues that tend to divide people that are very, very, very contentious and then just hitting them with adverts to, to, to sort of rile them up and, and make them more likely to turn out and get angry and and just cause cause a, a bit of a fight within the nation. Now, it's interesting. Uh, well, first of all, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck and acts like a duck, it's a duck. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, between uh, Cambridge Analytica and uh, the, the other entity, it sounds as though it's the same duck. So that's number one. Number mm-hmm. two, um, the... The campaign, the the use of um, the use of internet adverts in the campaign was that the first time that they had been so widely used in Britain. Um, well, the, I kind of start the book out actually with the the opening scene is when the opening date even in the book is when Twitter introduced uh, targeted advertising. So that was January twenty fifteen. Right now, um, that was not long before the first uh, the first um, election in the UK where, where targeted ads had been used. That, that was the 2015 election in which the Conservative Party won um, an unexpected majority after, and some people have credited it to the, the, the digital campaign where they targeted adverts in, in swing seats and were able to get over the edge. Now, there, there's not a lot of data on that and it's it's very difficult to say, but like they, they were definitely advertising more um, succinctly at that point than than any of the other political parties, but now, Brexit was the first time that it was was really um, really used on a on a really widespread scale where where they were able to target um, personalities. So let's get down. Uh, you had you had talked uh, in the book and you talked in a previous uh, in a previous podcast about dark ads. Let's talk about 
the kind of ads that happened in the 2016 Brexit campaign. Um, for instance, if an analyst, Cambridge Analytica, whoever it was, if they went online and they saw that um, Jim Hurley, for instance, they monitored my uh, they monitored my my social media um, activities and they saw that I was very interested in trade and that I was uh, that I was against free trade and that I was for that I was uh, you know I wanted to withdraw from the EU, for instance. Um, would they then take that knowledge of my past opinions and then craft an advert and target me personally with that? Or, it, or was it, it wasn't that granular? No, it, it like, it, this is, this is the scary part and really it can be that granular. And actually there's a couple of examples I quote in the, in the book that are, are, are US based um, in the Cambridge Analytica campaign with um, the Trump campaign. Now the, there was estimations at one point that they were running 40 to 50,000 different variants of adverts to, in order to track what got the most uh, click through, what was generating the most engagement, what people were sharing or what, they weren't because that's that's like a part of it that people don't even consider is that every time you you are on social media so say you're scrolling down and you like something or you click on an advert it's like yes okay that is registered that this particular type of advert worked but when you don't they're still getting data because they're understanding what doesn't work and then they they so so whatever whatever uh, action we're we're making like the the people are learning from from how this works so they'll they'll take um 100 200 300 of your likes and then they'll try and map your personality so they do that by like putting you in groups of people who have a lot of similar likes and they can do that based on um, some work they've done analyzing um how your facebook likes correlate with your personality type well, and then yeah l so let's that's, just, that's let's essentially just... how it can work oh well let's just come back to the british electorate uh in the 2016 referendum uh, let's see, the population of Britain is what, about 65 million people? The electorate in total, how, how large was the electorate uh, that took part in the referendum? Was it 25, 30 million people, something like that? Uh, 31 million people, I think, voted as far as I can remember. Okay, so 31 million people voted, and the breakdown was 52-48, so almost, mm. uh, almost equal. So you mean for... 31 million people, they were able to target individuals out of that pool of 31, as opposed to, uh, you know, say a, a pool of 500,000 people or a million people? Um, well, like this is, this is where if you've, if um, anyone listening has ever advertised anything on, on Facebook or, or any social media type, you can, you can pick people out based on you or based on like similar audiences things that they like and everyone else that's like that you can target them by age by gender there's there's a whole bunch of different metrics you can choose by interest like F facebook categorizes you into um into groups dependent on your likes for to to sort of auction you off to sell your data to to advertisers trying to attract specific types of people like like there's um there's they, they separate into categories like temperamental or stoic traditionalist and then from there you're targeted based on whether the collection of likes that you have are related to the collection like to the the parameters of the the targeted ad that can be put forward 
um, like it, the 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 Trump campaign in 2016 was particularly good at this. Um, like for example, you could run a whole bunch of targeted ads in Kent County, Michigan, about bringing back jobs, and if you get a whole bunch of of click through, then you know time to time to have a rally there and and you know amp up that so so it can be used not only to 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 like spread a message but to also like understand like what types of people are are interested in what types of messages and and the amount of data here is is phenomenal and and this is what i think the the main point i'm trying to make with the book is is essentially that like the there is so much data being collated on on our every click and and to give that to political campaigners is is incredibly dangerous i think now as a result of the success of the brexit campaign um has there been any attempt in parliament to regulate these practices i mean we had a uh we had a big committee that did uh, a bunch of hearings on on the topic and you know hold people in for for questioning and and they produced a big report which made some very very um concerning points about the the, the vulnerability of our democracy not only to uh, dark adverts but to like foreign actors to misinformation to manipulation and uh, we essentially proceeded to do nothing about it um there's there's been no no movement forwards no suggestion that um, political ads need be regulated or curtailed, and and honestly, that 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 surprises me because in in the UK at least, I know you have different television ads um, in America, but we don't have them uh, political TV ads in in the UK. We just don't allow them uh, because we believed at the time. I, I think the theory at least was that like politics belonged on the doorstep, and people should go out and campaign and your your success should be based on how many people you can get excited about your message to come to your rallies to go out on the street to knock on doors to to canvas for you to help get out the vote and it shouldn't be from behind a laptop screen or a or a tv camera and and i think that that's probably the way it has to go if we're to maintain the the integrity of of our democracy really uh, it doesn't matter where you're from Mm-hmm. Now, now tell me, Josh, were both sides, obviously the, the Leave side who wanted Brexit to be successful, they were they were doing this. But was the stay side also doing this? Um, yeah, they, they were they were targeting um, millions of voters. I mean, the, the early in in 2015, um, Trump messaging was being tested. Um, Cambridge Analytica, you might not know, is owned by Robert Mercer, who was one of the biggest backers of Trump at the very beginning. Um, and they were introduced to him by uh, Steve Bannon, who was also Trump's campaign manager and um, chief of staff or, or chief of staff or I can't remember what his role was exactly. But he was there in the White House for a while. Um, so so the, the, this little little group of people have c- cooked up um, this what what the one of the, the architects of it, um, Christopher Wiley, described as the wep- weaponized propaganda machine. And it's able to just, it collates just terabytes of data. And they, they had, they had um, information on what's estimated to be every single adult in, in America. Now, the, the few that they weren't able to get information <laughs> on, I don't think matters. But like if that, they, 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 they had a ridiculous um ridiculous uh well of data that they called the database of truth and it's like just a little bit <laughs> which is a little bit um eerie 
especially considering one of the guys who um, who worked with Cambridge Analytica on on some of this uh, personality targeting actually at one point decided to refer to himself as Dr. Spectre. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, that's not a joke. That's serious. Like, like, <laughs> I, no, I'm, I'm, um, I, I'm, I'm laughing. I'm thinking of Spectre from the 1960s, but um, you yeah, know, you, yeah, that you is, met, that's, that's what I'm pretty sure what he's referencing. <laughs> it, now you mentioned, you mentioned the Mercer family, Robert Mercer and his daughter. Um, I'm sure as you mm. recall, they're both uh, they're both major investors in Parler, which is the conservative alternative to Twitter, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it's back up now. Yeah, now uh, the, the 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 interesting thing, honestly, um, about that the the entire uh, debate over Parler being being taken down essentially was that you know there's a lot of things that happen on Facebook. Um, that that uh, you know, organ people are people were auctioning off parts of the Amazon rainforest on Facebook Marketplace for for deforestation, and um, they they find that far more of the violence that occurred um, in the capital um, during the on the on, on inauguration day, people were organising on Facebook and Twitter, uh, not so much Parler, and yet Parler the ones that suffer, and I think it's because um, they don't have as big a lobbying budget, and uh, honestly, that's that's probably the reason why we haven't had the the level of uh, regulation that we probably need to have, or scrutiny even um, on these social media firms, because that they they they're yeah they're bankrolling all of our politicians. I think last year was the first year that um, big tech lobbying overtook uh, the fossil fuel industry in America. Uh, now let's come back to let's come back to the Civil War that you uh, mm. that's in the title of your book i mean civil wars are pretty serious things we had one here in the united states uh in the 1860s of course uh in in england there was a civil war in the 1600s um when i think of a civil war i think of um uh, I, I think of territory being gained and lost and uh tell me Explain to me what the Civil War is in the Conservative Party, which is still the governing party of Boris Johnson, uh, which, of course, mm. was the party of uh, Theresa May, of David Cameron, the three prime ministers, two of whom were basically killed off by Brexit. Explain to me yeah. how Civil War factors into the future of the Conservative Party, which is currently governing Britain. Well, the, the civil war that I'm talking about in the book, the Establishment Civil War, is one that started in the Conservative Party. It's uh, the, the Brexiteers versus the Remainers, um, those who wanted to leave Europe and those who wanted to remain. And um, it, it essentially comes down, in my mind at least, to those who felt that they, they are, our economy and therefore they, they would be better off remaining within the stability of the EU and those who believed that there was far more profiting to be made outside of the EU. And essentially, I believe that's what the entire referendum campaign came down to for this ruling class. The people had very different arguments about, about why we should remain in the EU or why we should leave. But for, for the establishment, this is where the civil war came down to. It was those who wanted to profit from the sort of possibility for far less regulation they wanted a, they, they've talked about a singapore on the thames um sitting offshore of europe where they could have highly deregulated low tax free port loving free market pure unabashed neoliberalism and that they felt they could make more money out of that and um 
ultimately they 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 won the argument but not but honestly it's 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 going to be to the detriment of the people because whilst the people may have wanted you know less immigration and or sovereignty or or a little bit more control of our our nation back in the midst of uh, globalization unfortunately none of those problems are going to go away because we've left the eu just as none of the problems of the trump voters in america went away because trump was elected um it, it it's not going to change things for the the people and that is possibly the most tragic part <laughs> so are you saying then that the that the british voters and uh, and also american voters for that matter who voted for trump or british voters who voted for brexit that they were essentially hoodwinked um, i mean i don't like it's it's difficult to say hoodwinked because that that makes them out to 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 have not known that this is what politicians wanted do you know what I mean? Like, I, I don't I don't know if there was if there's any. Well, maybe there are. But there's I would say that the majority of Trump or Brexit voters are aware that politicians are lying and that they're aware that things might not be as wonderful as they they made them out to maybe possibly be. You know, they, they didn't they didn't make America great again. They, they haven't become the you know global Britain. And there's there's a, a trope of the sunny Brexit uplands that we're all waiting to approach. Um, I don't um, I, don't, I don't think that, that 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 if you honestly ask them that that they would they would they would be genuinely look right, they would say genuinely we believe there was no downsides possible, and ultimately it probably came down to more of a statement um, than than an than an absolute it's a, a statement against the established order or the status quo rather than a belief that by simply voting this way that everything was going to get better. You know I don't I don't think that people are that naive. Mm -hmm. Now, tell me, um, of course, Scotland voted 62% to stay. Northern Ireland mm -hmm. voted 55% to stay. I think Wales, uh, and yesterday was St. David's Day, uh, Wales voted uh, to leave along with England, I believe. But um, so we're possibly looking, and of course, we're seeing Scotland demanding another independence referendum. Um, Northern mm. Ireland has a separate agreement with the EU um, remaining in the single market. The, the Conservative Party, are were, were they not playing with fire and looking at the breakup of the United Kingdom? Did they not think that through? Yeah, but honestly, I don't think that really, like the, a lot of them maybe care about it symbolically. But honestly, I don't think, especially in the case of Northern Ireland, at least, um, they they care. Um, honestly, that's at least the um, the impression you get uh, listening to the British politicians talk about Northern Ireland. We're essentially ignored and forgotten until um, until say Theresa May needs uh, a few more seats in her uh, coalition in order to have the majority. But I think that honestly, it's it's. It comes down to the, the things I explore at the, at the end of my book in that I believe that Brexit is possibly going to be a primer for disaster capitalism. And all of the people who were in the in the British establishment campaigning for Brexit, they uh, they they will see the, the monetary opportunity there. And that's all it all it's about. You know, Scotland isn't a huge contributor to the economy generally compared to like the whole of england you know mm -hmm. the rest of the countries in the in in the uk are we're, we're not like the the powerhouse in in any way um we're not 
we're not the biggest economic contributors. They could they could stand to leave us and probably not notice um, that much. I mean, the Scots would maybe disagree, but I'm pretty sure the Scots want rid of the English as much as the English want rid of the Scots. <laughs> um, you know, if if but, I uh, again drawing a parallel with the the Trump forces here in the United States, uh, as extreme at times as the Trump administration and Trump followers were. There was never any talk about uh, whole regions of the country seceding from the United States. I mean, that was ne- no, whereas you're not reading, you're not reading the same stuff I am. <laughs> well, well, what are you, what are you reading? What am I missing, Josh? Well, I, I mean, uh, after the after the 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 Texas lawsuit was thrown out regarding changes to voter laws in the Supreme Court, I heard the. Attorney General of Texas talk about forming an extra, a, a different union of states who believed in the Constitution. Uh, so that sounds like secession to me. Uh. <laughs> well, I, you know, uh, yes. I mean, I was uh, I was familiar with that headline. But on the other hand, we've been down that road before. And the precedent in the past was that the the union fought like uh, fought like crazy to maintain the union. So for any state texas which might be considering secession they know what the federal government the union government would do has done in the past to maintain the union so i i sort of regarded that as an as an idle threat but you know viewed from viewed from afar perhaps uh, uh perhaps i should take another look at it well i mean i think the talk the thing that the thing that that that, that caught my eye was not the texas secession by itself talk it's the it's the the union of other states who believe in the constitution. That sounds more like a a split rather than a like a single state, and that's a more serious accusation. Is why I paid attention to it. But well, that's yeah. that's uh, that's a very good point. Let's come back to your concept of disaster capitalism. Explain that to mm-hmm. me. Well, I mean, I can't say it's my concept. It ultimately comes from Naomi Klein um, and her just utterly fantastic writings on uh, in the shock doctrine. So essentially it says that there is a lot of money to be made in the midst of a crisis. And um, the, the, the best type of, of disaster capitalism of, 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 of neoliberalism really um, profits most in the midst of, of chaos because it uh, people will stand to suffer a lot of things if they think it's going to help the problem. And Britain has suffered... Um, sort of I, what I believe to be several waves of, of neoliberalism that, that have outsourced a lot of public services and um, sold off a lot of our public assets that of things that that were built by my grandparents and my parents and their and their great grandparents perhaps and their their tax money and then it's off it's over the last sort of 30 years been slowly sold off and, and quite often it knockoff prices and the the outsourcing campaign has done nothing but reduce the uh just reduce the the effectiveness of our public services and we're starting to see that more and more and more over the past few years and i think that brexit will essentially be used to justify further privatizations and further sell-offs of our of our state and deregulation and and that that really concerns me because it will be sold be sold as the way to stimulate the economy and then again the the people will suffer that's um i i think for instance uh rama manuel who worked in the obama white house during the uh 
the 2009 financial crisis, uh, famously said, "You never waste. Uh, you never waste a good crisis." And that's yeah, uh, that's kind of in line with what you're saying. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and and I I think that that we need to be be concerned because um, after the 2008 um, financial crash, for example, the the 2010 government that came in in the UK implemented a, a, a seriously stinging program of austerity where um, if, if current trends continue, we're going to see, uh, I've seen a cut to public services of about 34 billion pounds a year or public spending. And that, that, that those cuts have, have not affected everyone equally. Um, there's parts of the country where that saw like a seven to 800 pound per, per person spend reduction and parts of the company or parts of the country, notably London, that saw only say a hundred to two hundred pounds of, of of spending cuts since then, and this was all done under the spat the um, the auspice of trying to rebuild the economy, and and then what we got was was ten years of of lost wage growth, where um, people were no better off ten years later um, after the after the crash, and. Uh, yet the the richest in society had 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 rebuilt their wealth and and then some, and honestly, I believe that's what's going to happen here with Brexit unless we uh, stand up and and take note. And I, I, I it's 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 driving the same same underlying factors that are causing instability in the U.S. at the minute, and that's wealth and and income inequality. And, and there, there's a level of inequality that's acceptable in a country. Uh, you're never going to get everyone having the same. But at the same time, when it gets too too extreme, then that's when things really get unstable, and that's when you get, you know, riots in the street or people trying to storm government buildings. <laughs> mm-hmm. But with Boris Johnson's with Boris Johnson's Conservative Party having an eighty plus seat majority in Parliament, uh, he's mm. pretty much safe for the next four years, right? Yeah, uh, they're going to they 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 have a lot of scope to wade through basically whatever they want. Um, and that's the concerning part. Now, what about the the opposition parties, the the Labour Party, the Lib Dems, the Green Party? Do they offer a a very different view of uh, of of how Brexit should be managed? I mean, and it, it was such a, it was such a problematic issue amongst the the Labour Party. They're our second largest party. They're basically our version of the Democrats, and they were split between an older sort of more socialist sort of faction in the party who were very uh, against the eu who didn't believe in, in the way it was uh, coming from top down they didn't believe in a lot of their sort of anti-state aid laws that would allow the government to intervene in, in industries to help out struggling industries and the, uh, again, the their membership that is very very young and very supportive of EU membership, and they they were really split on it, so that they were they were struggling the entire time to provide like a clear opposition to it because they were trying to hold together the party essentially mm-hmm. over this one issue. So they were always like, "Well, we're still in support of Brexit, but um, we do it differently." <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, you know, it's uh, so it, th- th- that's also one of the reasons I think it it didn't get a robust enough debate because they were trying to hold together the party while we should have been trying to negotiate and understand the biggest political movement to ever happen in our lifetimes mm-hmm. um, and, and try and like parse out how to make a good, how to, how to like 
make a success of it and like or at least try and try and address some people's grievances and the whole time it was either you know you believe in brexit or you don't mm -hmm. you know um and it, it's it like that that polarization brings us as, as nicely back to social media because i think that makes that worse um and i think that's one of the problems that it's uh that i write about in the book that is really causing our our democracy and our level of public debate to just fall off a cliff now as we come into our uh, closing minutes of our conversation here is there any real threat at this point to Boris Johnson and his conservatives remaining in power for the next four years or to implementing the more radical aspects of the Brexit policies? Um, I mean, the, the, they are doing very well in the polls at the minute. Um, the, the, the new leader of the Labour Party has been was like reasonably popular and he was doing pretty well. And then it's, it sort of turned out that he's just turning his back on a lot of his policy commitments that he made whilst running for leadership and just generally not offering very much opposition. And he is not looking like a real threat. So the only thing that could happen is like a real like public outrage and uprising. But aside, aside from that, I, I, I don't see, I don't see there being too many constraints on, on Boris. Mm -hmm. So if uh, so, at this point, Josh, what is your what is your sense? I mean, uh, I, I I get a sense you're you're not terribly optimistic at this point as <laughs> as Brexit unfolds. And in fact, Brexit, of course, has been overshadowed by COVID, both in Britain, throughout the world, here in the United States. But um, I'm I'm not sensing a lot of optimism here. Well, I mean, I'm not particularly optimistic for the short term future. I'm trying to get people to come around to my way of thinking that, look, prior the EU now, we need to figure out what we can do that's good with that. Um, I mean, the pound has been a little bit stronger against the euro over the last month. That's a good thing. Um, we're going to be able to do a lot of things without, you know, being that concerned by EU regulations that, that may be a hindrance in some areas. And that's a really good thing. And we honestly don't know what, like, the result is going to be because, you yeah, People are always, always like pessimistic about like more protectionist trade strategies, especially at the minute. But like ultimately, if things if things cost us more to ship them in from abroad, that's going to benefit like British companies who are who who are making things you know at home, and they they're the, the sort of COVID. I don't know. I think you're going to see sort of a lot of COVID protectionism where people are going to be very keen to like keep things in their own community. I've definitely seen more of that myself where people want to buy things locally and support their local businesses and, and that plus Brexit and the need to sort of get behind the, the our, you know, struggling companies or ones that like are trying to replace say EU ones. You know, I, I think it's not, it's not all cause for pessimism and there might be good things to come because you know, whoever, Whoever tries to make political predictions is uh, is a fool, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, Josh, uh, um, I, I want to thank you very much. Where can our listeners buy a copy of your book? And again, the, uh, the title, why don't you give the title and tell us where we can buy it? Yeah, so my book is called Brexit, The Establishment Civil War. You'll get it on Amazon. You'll get it on bookshop.org, which is a fantastic uh, site that is pushing for independent bookstores to become their own Amazon. So they're, they're signing up affiliates with loads of little independent bookstores. And it's a fantastic way to support like, you know, small bookstores over Amazon. Uh, you can get it uh, by going to establishmentcivilwar.co.uk. 
www.ghostbusters.co.uk that is and uh, check out my there's a chapter preview there and a couple of interviews with people where I talk about you know similar topics to the ones I address in the book well Josh uh, I hope that all of our listeners will will rush to uh, to Amazon and the other uh, vendors that you mentioned to buy a copy of the book I really want to thank you for taking time. Uh, you're there in Belfast, uh, Northern Ireland. You're eight hours ahead of us here in San Francisco. I want to thank you very much for your for your time, for your insights, um, actually on the ground and living Brexit on a day-to-day basis. And thank you very much for sharing your thoughts and your insights on Brexit with our listeners. Oh, not a problem. Thanks for having me. For our listeners, please take a moment to visit our website, www.thesanfranciscoexperiencepodcast.com and subscribe. It's free to do so, and by subscribing, all future episodes come directly to your inbox. The website also features my blog and links to my book. This has been The San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Herlihy, reporting to you from America's favorite city, San Francisco.